Cigar Cast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We're recording live from Crown Cigars and Nails here in beautiful Brooklyn, Tennessee. I'm one of your hosts, Trey Devin. I'm joined as I am every week by Mr. Shane Reeves. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is as close to live as it gets. That's right. By time, if you if you hear this when we post it, we will have just put out our cigars. Right. We will probably still be finishing well, them, yeah. as a matter of fact. And all, but now I've had a big week in cigars that we've got to talk about because the reason we're recording on Saturday is we both decided to go camping in separate locations. Yeah, and also both both fairly similar. I don't, you didn't say, say anything say anything about the the response to your post on our page that I posted, but yeah, we're halfway across the state from one another, but still enjoying our Africas and the fire and fishing, oh, yeah. and it was great. All that good stuff. But let's get our cigars lit because I've got to make a choice and I'm going to have to have some assistance to make this choice. All right. Then I got to tell you about the group I was camping with and how the cigars worked there. All right. So I have two cigars here. So last week I went and picked up this Romeo and Juliet Nicaraguan Reserve Real. It was a six, six and a half when I smoked it that night. Wow. It blew my socks off. I've always been a fan of the Reserva Real line. Well, and these are made in the Fernandez factory. Yeah. And also, it's just an amazing cigar. If I talk you out of smoking that one, are you going to give it to me? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's it's a question of which one have I got to smoke this week and which one am I going to smoke next week. Gotcha. And also, I really want that cigar. That's really the cigar I want. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, I have already smoked that one. So this my father, the Casa de Monte Cristo exclusive. Oh, how about that? Picked that up while I was there the other day um, talking to Hutch. And I hadn't lit it yet. I hadn't smoked it yet. I hadn't had a chance. And I got to thinking, you know, it's nice to debut a new cigar on the show. True. But I think, so here's, here's the choice. If I smoke the Casa... I'm not going to smoke the Reserva on the show because it's not going to last another week in my humidor. But if you smoke the Reserva, there's a chance that that one holds. Yeah, I can lay this one in the locker because I don't know how good it is. So I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to end up smoking the Reserva. I think yeah, that's, as, I think as that's good. the right move. Have you had these yet? I haven't. That's You've got to get it. Yeah. I mean, just a mind-blowing cigar. Nicaraguan Puro. It's got a Nicaraguan Habano wrapper on okay. it. Nicaraguan binders and fillers. Uh, like I said, they're made in the A.J. Fernandez factory, and it is just everything that well, they do right. And they've been collaborating with A.J. for a while now, uh, mm-hmm. for the last couple of years pretty strongly, and I've been a big fan of everything that has come out of that uh, collaboration. And I've always been a big fan of the Reserva Real line in general, so I have no doubt that that's a fantastic cigar, and I'm not surprised to hear six, six and a half on that. Yeah, it's it's it was just, and I, I'm curious if it was the moment I smoked it, or because it was it was I was winding down, I was getting ready for my trip, so I was just having it on the back porch of my wife. Right, so, so that wasn't even a camping cigar. No, it wasn't even a camping cigar. And uh, so I'm curious if it was the moment I had it, or if it is just that good. And that's the, what I want to find out. There is something about that cigar right before you leave on vacation that's just something special. You know, you're already in vacation mode, but you haven't left the house yet. Right. You're in vacation mode, but you haven't left all your stuff. Yeah, exactly. So you've got the freedom of mind, but the, the, the familiarity of home. By contrast, uh, I'm not smoking anything that terribly special this week, but I was walking through the humidor when I got here today, and I wanted to do something a little different. I actually had a JFR Lunatic yesterday, and I think I've had one on the show at one point, but it's been a while, 
and the draw was so terrible that I was I was contemplating going back and see if I just happened to catch a bad one. So, but but then I saw the Camacho Ecuador, and this is a cigar that I have probably smoked two boxes worth, and but haven't had one in about two years. And I think part of that comes from the fact that they've started pricing them out of where I think they really belong. It's an eight dollar, seven fifty dollar cigar. They're about ten bucks though, and, yeah. and I have a really hard time paying ten dollars for a seven and a half dollar cigar. That being said, it has been so long, and it being a nice sunny eighty degree, you know, summer day, it really felt like the day for it. So, it's, uh, it's Ecuadorian Havana wrapper. Go ahead. It's amazing that when there's certain times you walk in the humidor and the cigar you want just sings to you. Right. You just you know you had no you know you probably never had a thought about smoking that cigar on the show tonight. Didn't even dawn on you to that it was there till you seen it and decided that was what you wanted. Exactly. Yeah, it just jumped out at me, and then I didn't even think twice. I was like, yeah, that, that sounds good. Um, so, yeah, Ecuadorian Havana wrapper, Brazilian binder, and uh, Honduran and Dominican filler. So I always forget how much going on there is in this cigar, that it's not just, you know. So I like that cigar. It lacks complexity. It does. It does. It has flavor without complexity. Mm-hmm. It's like they have. It's like they have a bunch of different flavors, but they never quite got them melded and balanced. I, I think that there's an ingredient missing. I think there's something that cigar needs that would bring it alive. And part of me wonders if what's missing is time. You know, granted, when you age a cigar, the flavors do tend to blend together and they kind of mellow out. But sometimes that can come with an added complexity because you're actually tasting all of those flavors instead of having them compete with one another. I don't keep real close tabs on Austin's inventory here, but I do know this looks, that box doesn't look like it has gotten very small and then big again anytime recently. So there may be about a year of age or six months of age on this. Well, he don't sell a lot of Camachos here because of exactly what you said. There's so many other cigars at that price point that are better. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that happens is you get a, you know, for that price, I can have an Avo Fogata. Well, why in the world would I have a Camacho when I can have an Avo? Yeah, it's true. I had to, I, I paid about a quarter more than I would have for the Avo Heritage, which we all know how much I love that cigar. Any other day of the week, I'm picking up that Heritage. But something about the just being for the show and and being you know one o'clock on a Saturday afternoon it would just it became the Camacho today. But. Well, let me tell you, the Reserve Round Nicaragua is a box buy for me. That's a yeah. box coming. Already, soon. it's it's coming right back to you as as soon as you know the next um, where they do the buy buy twenty get a big gift pack. Oh yeah. And it's an all of these products, so they'll do that. When they do that, I'll be up there purchasing a box. That is such a, a good deal that they do. Oh, yeah. Casa does a great job on that. On their promotions and yeah, things. Yeah, but they're owned by Altadis. They have a lot more flexibility to yeah. do that kind of stuff. And for the non-Altadis pro- products that they sell, they buy in such quantities that it gives them that ability as well, which is really nice. I'm interested to see what the Chinese gangsters bring to the to the table, you know. Do we, do we get a fortune cookie at the end? How does that work? No, I think Punch already has that locked up. Yep. Yeah, they got the, punch, the fortune cookie locked up, but... 
So let's talk about something fun while you get your cigar going and yeah. get your. So, um, so we both spent the the week off the beaten path, but you know we are kind of experiencing a lot of quarantine fatigue in this area. You know, Tennessee and the Nashville area, for the most part, they did a decent job at lockdown. Certainly not as extreme as others. Certainly not as lax as others. But I'm noticing from even the most uh, respectful of the situation people that we're, I'm starting to see a lot of fatigue, people ready to get back out. I love the way you phrase that because I call them pro-corona people. No, I... Because, <laughs> they, they, you know, Adam Carolla made this example last week, and I'm, I'm giving him full credit for it because of its brilliance. At one time, smokers smoked anywhere. Then they said, hey, would y'all mind smoking in this section, and we'll have, we'll have non-smoking over here. No problem. Cool. Hey, would y'all mind just smoking in the bar, and we'll eat over here. Fine. No problem. Hey, would y'all mind smoking in the patio? And at some point, you just say, y'all don't really dislike smoking. You just like telling people what to do. Yeah. And I think there's an element of that to this whole corona thing. Now, I don't think it's an international conspiracy to inflict socialism upon us, but I do think there is a... Uh, element where, oh, wow, hey, we were politicians and we got to tell people what to do for a little while and they don't want to let it go. Yeah, and I do think there's some component, but I I didn't bring that up to talk about um, the coronavirus itself. I want to talk about it because there are a lot of people that are still looking for a way to get out. I was talking to a guy up here yesterday who's got the travel bug so bad he can't stand it. So from Aficionado, they are now doing a virtual tour of cigar factories and fields. And I think this is a great way. If you do happen to be feeling a little bunched up and you still want to kind of go and experience a virtual tour of a cigar factory is a great way to do that right now in lieu of the real thing. It is. It's, you know, the... You don't get the smells, and I love the smells of factory yeah. like that. You know, especially a tobacco field has a specific agricultural right. smell, and even a cigar factory because they're sitting there and they're smoking their cigars as they roll some. They usually have one in their mouth, and all, and they smoke them. If you do, if you look at some of these tours, I've looked at some of these tours. You'll see that the torcadors are in there and they have a cigar in their mouth and they're sitting there rolling these others and all that, and it's just it's beautiful. It's just a beautiful. So that's that's the problem. We need smell a vision or something where we could actually get that portion of it out of our iPad. We do. Um, now I will say they have in this article, they have curated about twelve different um, videos and virtual tours. Um, three of which are from Cuba, which is something that probably a lot of us won't even get the opportunity to see in person. So that's a great insight there. Um, but it's broken up between. Uh, Ecuador, Dominican Republic, Nicaragua. Um, you know, the one for Rocky Patel actually is led by him, which is really cool. Um, so just a great way to get some good insider information, to feel like you're still connected. Um, and, you know, you watch two of these, and it's the length of a cigar. Right. Which is, which is perfect, because when I'm smoking my cigar, I'm usually listening to something or watching something or doing something else. And uh, you don't necessarily just sit. So which one, which which ones did you watch? The making of the Padron cigars. Of course, I seen Padron, so I had to go for that one. Right. That one is okay. Um, the other one I looked at was the Cuban, one of the Cuban ones. Let me pull it back up here. Oh, El Laguito, home of the Cahiba. Oh, okay. 
And that one was interesting and all, because it, it's interesting to see the people there, because the most democratic thing in the world, to me, is the cigar business. Right. Because you're paid on what you produce, and you're paid on what you're capable of producing. Mm-hmm. You know, you start out as a torcador, you start out rolling small cigars, petite Coronas, things like that, and you work your way up. To the Solomons and the more complex Calabras right. and things like that. But even the, you don't start with the Lancero. You don't necessarily start with the smallest cigar. You start, because the Lancero takes a lot of skill. Exactly. Because you're handling the, a lot more wrapper. Right. And also, the, it's interesting to watch that, but you're paid on what you do. It's beauty. You're paid on what you do, the number of cigars you do. You know, um, Don Gonzalez have talked about this many times. He pays his rollers. They're allowed to roll 300 cigars a day. That's it. Mm-hmm. If they roll 300 by lunch, they're done. But he knows that after 300 cigars, the quality declines. Yeah. And also, this is the number of cigars you're allowed to roll a day. If you roll them in five hours, great. If it takes you 12 hours, that's great, too. Yeah. But here it is. There's There was a lot to be said. But, yeah, I was talking with somebody recently about um, bricklayers, you know, and watching how efficiently a very skilled bricklayer can work. And... You know, from throwing bricks to each other so the guy never has to climb down off the scaffolding, you know, all that stuff. And and what that has in common with the cigar industry is being paid per unit. Right. Those guys are paid by the brick, not the job, not the hour. Yeah. You want someone to produce for you, pay them per unit, per task. Well, but you have to be careful because what happens in the brick industry happens. Well, true. But, you know, um, when you have quality controls like Don Gonzalez has, in, like Pedro has in his factory, um, you eliminate speed for speed's sake. Right. You know, the one of the houses I had built, I made them tear the front off of it three times because here's the way it should work. We're going to give a brick lesson. My daddy was a mason. Do you know mason, second oldest profession in the world? Yeah, that's a heck of a product. Not as good as the first oldest profession, but it's still a great product they got going there. (laughs) Exactly. So what should happen is a bricklayer should show up on site, and he should spend the first day building all the corners. He wants so a bricklayer is paid by the thousand. He won't get. um, I don't know why I'm going into brick on a cigar cast, but roll with me. He won't make a lot of money his first day. But he'll make it up the second day because all the corners will be square, all the corners will be level, and then you fill in in between them to bring it to. Well, somebody decided, no, I can't not make enough money on the first day. So they come out there and they clamp a piece of angle iron on the side of the wall, pull a string, and start laying brick. Mm -hmm. And you get some of the worst brick jobs. One of my buddies bought a house. I wouldn't have fired the mason out of shotting right there in the front yard. And if, if anybody out there is having a hard time kind of picturing the difference and try and draw a square freehand mm-hmm. because that's essentially what they're doing when you put that angle out, the corners you end up at the end and your first corner doesn't match up with your last corner right and and that's why it that's why it becomes a problem and there's two distinctive styles of brick masonry there's those that lay them walking forward and there's those that lay them walking backward i've always been a backward man and I'll, it's I've a, known that about you for a <laughs> you while. You figured that out a long time ago. And I'll, because for me, it's easier to lay one and back up. But there, you'll see m- masons that can lay them forward. And I'll, but to me, if I'm laying them backward, I can maintain that mortar joint much That's, more consistently. If I, I've never laid brick. If I were going to, to me, it makes the most sense to walk backwards and, and to keep an eye on where you've been 
especially since that's your point of reference for level and true going forward. And I wonder if you go in a factory, a cigar factory, and look at 20 different rollers, if they each ha- if they if there's a frontward and backward cigar roller. I don't, I've always wondered, we need to ask somebody, next time you talk to Pedro, ask him if he has any left-handed cigar rollers. Oh, yeah. I have never asked him that. I've, That's a great question. Because I've, I've noticed, you know, and I've talked about it on the show before, if you get a cigar that's not constructed just perfectly, when you're smoking in the car, it, wind will inevitably always catch it on that seam and, and will blow it up for you, especially if you're at, like, highway speeds, like on the interstate. And, and I've noticed that it's because all cigars are rolled the same direction. Right. And I wonder if that's because left-handed people are not allowed to roll cigars or if you're not allowed to roll them with a left-handed bias or if there's some other reason for that. I don't know, but I will. I guarantee you next time I sit with Pedro and have a smoke, we will discuss right versus left-handed rollers. And it could just come down to having to set up the desk differently for different rollers. I right. mean, I assume they all sit at the same tables day after day, but you never know. Yeah, yeah, it may do. That's a, that's an interesting thought because I've, I've never, of all the time I've spent watching people roll. But these videos are great because you do get to see some of that. Yeah, so I'll, I'll keep an eye out when I'm watching some more of these videos. And all, but very, very interesting stuff. And I love to to look at the old factories and see the old doors because every now and then you hear that story, which I don't know if it's a marketing gimmick or not, but I fall for it every time. We we were cleaning out the back and we found this box and nobody knew what was in it, and we popped it open and it was this box of cigars. So yeah. we've only got five hundred of them to sell, and they're half million dollars a box, but we know they're good because <laughs> we forgot about them. Well, if they were so good, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somebody. Well, they probably weren't good when they found out about them, and then they yeah. they determined. Well, it's it's funny you bring that up because uh, something similar happened in the UK Parliament this week, or no, about three weeks ago. Apparently, there was a long forgotten secret passageway that was just recently discovered. Yeah. The, so the secret passageway business. We speak architecturally for a moment about the secret passageway business. We do a lot of a lot more. There's a lot more of this stuff goes on than the average person knows. See, because when I brought this up to you, that was my question. How many of your houses do you design with secret passageway? Because if if I had unlimited resources to build a dream house, there would be basically two houses. It would be the secret house and the house that everyone walks through. Well, you have to go down right. or up. Right. And, uh, and generally down. Generally down is the way you go with any secret passageway. It comes from the basement. And Because uh, if you go up or out, then somebody walks in your house, they can very quickly deduce where your panic room is. Exactly. So the secret passageway, um, we have, you know, our most popular house that one of my builders s- sells, we call it the bat pantry. Because we built a full pantry, but then we just put a 24-inch cabinet in front of it that serves as the door. Oh, okay. So if you look at the kitchen, it just looks like all the pantry is is this little cabinet. And then you open it up, and the back of it opens into an 8 by 10 room. That's pretty cool. Yeah, we call it the bat pantry. We've always called it that. That's always been a, a trick, and everybody loves the bat pantry. Uh, the thing, I've, I've been obsessed with secret passages probably since watching Batman as a kid or playing Clue. I'm not sure which. Um the thing that's funny about this to me, about the fact that the House of Commons just recently found one, is when you think of the, the Parliament in the UK, I still think of stodgy old white wigs and just no... I mean, the, Brit, the British aren't exactly known for their 
wild sense of humor anyway. So what manner of like schoolboy roughhousing was going on in the House of Commons <laughs> that some guy just randomly fell through a cabinet <laughs> door and, and discovered? Like, I would love to know this, the, the, the story of how, A, it got forgotten, and B, how it got rediscovered. Well, and the other big thing that we do is escape tunnels. Mm. And I'll tell you something funny about escape tunnels. Um, so the most cost-effective way to build an escape tunnel is four-foot diameter culverts. And all, and you dig the ditch and you put the culverts in it because they're, they're designed to stand the weight anyway. Right. And you just hook it to the basement and then somebody can move the grandfather clock and slide through the escape tunnel. But... If you have to crawl several hundred yards on concrete culverts, it hurts your knees badly. Right. So we always include two body boards. <laughs> so you can get in those tunnels and lay on those body boards and push against the edges, and you can shoot from one end of that tunnel unbelievably quick with zero damage to yourself. <laughs> but it's, it's a cause and effect solution type system. Because if, if you had to build a mine shaft, for lack of better words, you'd have a lot of money in it. Mm-hmm. One of my clients, I won't disclose the location, he had a, his escape tunnel. He was way up in the government, and he had um, an escape tunnel built, and this was a big deal. I knew about it, and the plans that were sent to the city had nothing about the escape tunnel. Many, you know, Me and the guy that dug the ditch were about the only guys that knew about the escape tunnel. So sent everybody home one day, just the backhoe man out there and the culverts out there, opened up the ditch, put the culverts in it, and the Google Earth satellite flew over and took a picture. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're putting in your escape tunnel, check Google Earth and see when they're going to take a shot of your house. (laughs) Put a a tent up first. Yeah. Well, this this one was about 1,000 yards long. This one literally went from the basement out because this guy, one day the Black Hawk Hawk helicopters landed in the field and took him off. He was one of those guys. He was one of those guys. Got it. And I'll, so, um, but the, so if you're gonna do, if you're gonna do an escape tunnel, check Google Earth. Be sure they're not happen to fly over your house <laughs> during the moment of that. Hey, do you ever spend much time on Google Earth or any of the like Street mm-hmm. View stuff? And it it always cracks me up that they like pixelate people's faces, but then they don't pixelate or obfuscate other things like what they decide to obfuscate versus not. Oh yeah, I want to be I want to be in the room. With like the four brain trust members that are got a big projector set up and they're just popping pictures. Okay, do we need to do anything with that one? No. Okay. And then you've got the <laughs> the guy sun tanning with the horse face mask in his front yard because he knows the Street View car is coming by. No, we'll leave that. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, I imagine that's not done by four guys that are well paid. I imagine I'm that's sure not. I imagine that's the same guys that roll the petite Corona. Oh, probably so. <laughs> and all they're they're there doing that part of the business. But I've seen countless times a couple of dogs making a litter of puppies on the Google oh, yeah. Street View, and they yeah. leave that in every time. Yeah, I think they drive they drive out of their way to get to that portion. But really, the escape tunnel thing's really interesting. It's a lot of money. The best ones um, are ones where you have to have a basement anyway, but you can submerge it enough it don't look like it. Yeah. And we've even done stairways under islands. I'll have to show you a picture where you open the side of the island in the kitchen up and walk down the stairs. I've seen people do that for, like, wine cellars mm-hmm. and, and pantries and things like that. And uh, Which, but being underground, it's hard to make it a good cigar room. True. I but mean, that it makes would be it harder. The, the ultimate, and we've talked about this, I think, even on the show about how my, you know, I've promised my wife that I would um, 
do a give her a library in you know in the house that we eventually build to kind of be our forever house. She gets a library. My concession is that one of those bookcases is a is a door that opens up into a secret cigar room. Yeah, and that that should be that should be a foregone conclusion. The worst part about secret room is it's not really a secret because you really want to show it to everybody that comes in. <laughs> Exactly. It's hard to keep it a secret from the people that know I, you. I think you have to have a secret room and then a secret secret room. Right. You have to you have to have an entrance to the secret room from the secret room. Exactly. Okay. Well, that, that makes perfect sense. And all, but and w- when we get back, I've got to, I want to talk about. I spent a lot of time this week with people of both a younger generation and an older generation. And the smoking of my cigars was a big deal and fascinating to both ends of that spectrum. And I don't want to talk about that when we come back from the break. We're going to do one under eight here in a minute. But let me tell you something. That Reserve Real is six, six and a half all day long. It, it scares a seven to death. Wow. I mean, it's just such a amazing stick. I am going to have to pick one up then. I can't recommend it enough. But let's step away. When we come back, we'll talk about more. Shane here with this week's Cigar Under 8. Usually the Cigar Under 8 is a consensus between Trey and myself, but this week I'm going off book because I know he's going to, and I've got to tell everybody about this sale. Father's Day's coming up, Cigar.com. They're not paying us for this ad. I feel like that's important to say, but they put the H. Upman by A.J. Fernandez in the Mazo Special, a pack of 10 for $59.99. Six bucks a stick for this cigar. Hang on a second. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, Trey will be back after he orders a box. Exactly. And all, but that's just an amazing deal. It's an Ecuadorian Sumatra wrapper with Nicaraguan binder, and the filler is Dominican and Nicaraguan. And this is just a fabulous smoke. It really is. I absolutely love that. Cigar. And at, at that price, you just about can't afford not to. And all, Cigar.com really should send me a check someday. They really should. But the the H Upman by AJ Fernandez. It's just an amazing smoke, and at that price, who can turn it down? Yeah. So everybody travel. Welcome back to the Cigar Cast. This is one of your hosts, Shane, sitting across from the man that thought his bath light was automatic one night, but turned out he was just peeing in the refrigerator, Mr. Trey Dedman. <laughs> it's one of my favorite jokes. In a in a in a <laughs> In a bygone era, that was a real possibility. <laughs> and, uh, b- before you took the pledge, those days were That's right. <laughs> absolutely possible. Which, huh? believe it or not, will be three years on Tuesday. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. That's, that's awesome. I don't, li- I don't like the term, took the pledge. What's yeah. a, what should be the proper term for that? Just quit drinking? Yeah. Uh, I, I have my, my sobriety, if, for lack of a better term, um, although I think that probably isn't one because that's how it's designed. But anyway has really evolved this past year. You know, the first year was a huge milestone. The second kind of came and went without a whole lot of pomp and circumstance. I have changed a lot this past year to the point that I no longer feel the need to uh, identify as a type of person as a result of the choice that I made. And and I I no longer view it as a type of uh, personality. I don't go to the meetings anymore because I just wasn't getting anything out of them. So it's funny that you bring that up because I don't, I, I don't find any turn of phrase to be offensive, but I just, I don't even know what I would call it at this point. Yeah, I, I don't either, but 
It, it was interesting because this week we so the the camping trip. I'll explain the camping trip to our listeners. My grandmother has four brothers, and we would all gather on the banks of Bruton Branch there at Pickwick Lake every year for a week, the week of Memorial Day. That way, anybody only had ever had to take four days off because they were off Monday anyway, so it worked out well. Right. And we that we have people come from New Mexico, we have people come from Michigan, we have people come from West Tennessee, East Tennessee, from all over the country. All of us congregate on that riverbank for a week to just sit and fish and share and laugh and joke and all that stuff. Been going on for about 30 years. And all, and we're kind of at that stage where the torch is getting passed to me. Yeah. It's going to be up to me to kind of keep them coming back because a lot of the older, that generation, we only have one of the brothers left. You know, my grandmother passed away a year and a half ago. We only have one of the brothers left of that generation, and you have to be so careful with those things because everybody's glad when they get there, but it takes a lot to get them there. Yeah, and it, it, it takes a lot of special treatment, uh, uh, to, special accommodation to kind of ensure the welcomeness and to kind of remove the barriers. Well, just to drag a boat from New Mexico. Well, yeah. Oh, he's the one coming from New Mexico. <laughs> one of them. We, we had like six boats down there, so we had plenty of plenty of place for everybody to go fish but they did there were no cigar guys there i was the only cigar guy in that bunch any cigarette guys i know your dad was one at one point used to be a lot of a lot of former cigarette guys but they've kind of aged out of it a lot of people have aged out the new generation cigarettes ain't a big deal right you know the younger ones cigarettes don't matter the older ones cigarettes are kind of something they used to do yeah and also it was interesting because i'm kind of straddling that line because i had to explain to the old guys and I'll, I, I'd get ready to have a cigar, and they'd say, oh, yeah, well, go ahead and finish your cigar, and then we'll go do this. I said, no. This is an hour and a half. Right. This is an hour and a half. This is nothing but focusing on my cigar. This is me sitting here watching the eagles, watching the snakes, watching the lizards, enjoying the totality of this cigar. Mm-hmm. I said, so this is not something you can do while you're doing something else. You know, it's not, oh, yeah, hurry up and finish that. If i got to hurry up and finish it, I'm not going to light it to start with. Right. And trying to explain that to the older generation and trying to explain to them that I don't have to have a cigar. Right. They're used to the cigarette thing where you kind of get that craving and that kick. And I'm like, no. I said, when I can do it exactly. The way I want. Right. Exactly the way I want it. Because this is a hand-rolled creation that someone has put their life into, that someone has worked hard. And I really, I feel an obligation to, to kind of honor that, to honor the people that spent the time, the 300 hands that went into bringing this cigar to me. I know that's, that's kind of lofty. Yeah. But, but it, was, it was hard for the older generation to understand, and the younger generation just ugh, smoke bad. Well, and, and even if they're not, um, they don't understand the importance yet of taking a minute to slow down. You know, I don't know how old these kids are, I'm assuming early 20s. Oh, no. We had them from 8 to 86. Okay. Well, no. I'm thinking about the crew the, you're the younger, talking of. The younger crew I'm speaking of were from 8 to about 20. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. They, they, have, they have two modes, wide open and asleep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the walking around with a cell phone in their hand. Right. And so they don't understand the benefit yet of unplugging. Of You know, so we went camping. It was just the three of us. Um, my daughter and my wife and, and I, and we went to a cabin up in, well, and Oscar. Oscar went to. 
and we went to a cabin in North Georgia, and one of the best things about it was the fact that there was no cell service, and the Wi-Fi was dial-up speed, right? just because of how far out we were. So it was really nice because my daughter being 12 is at that prime kind of always connected age. Right. And, you know, we do put restrictions on screen time and things like that. But at the same time, there's a balance. You're on vacation. You lax the rules a little bit so that you get to enjoy what you want to enjoy. But I also want her to unplug and enjoy time with us. And and we were able to accomplish that. And some of the most fun, I mean, we probably played... um, 10 rounds of the board game Clue. Right. I mean, and just, you know, no phones, no, we'd play a little music or something, but like everyone was just invested in the time we were spending together and it was wonderful. And something that even when we're at home and we have the ability to do that, you don't necessarily get to do it all the time. Well, it was funny because two of the men that were there were my uncle Glenn, who just passed away two weeks ago, his sons. And he had been sick a long time, and they knew that it was coming and all. And he passed away, and they came on down anyway. And it was really um, cathartic for them to sit and hear us tell stories about all the stuff that Glenn had done and all the times we had took him fishing and the funny things and the way he used to cook and the way he used to do things. It, it was, it was really—I um, think it was a great joy for them to understand— how much we all loved their father too and how big a deal this was. Some of, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about memorial services and funerals as being not supposed to mourn the loss but to celebrate the life. And and usually it's a little too fresh at that point to really, even though we all know that that's really what it's intended for. Um, but some of my favorite memories are when all of my extended family has gotten together around a funeral uh, or a memorial service for like my grandmother or my uncle or the two that that come to mind because both on my dad's side my dad's one of six kids and so when his mom passed away in 2001 you know all of the kids and their spouses and the cousins and everybody was there together and while and my grandmother had been sick for a number of years with lung cancer. She had beaten it twice. And then when it came back the third time, she said, I'm not, I'm not doing this. You guys get ready. I'm ready. And so when she eventually passed, we all had come to terms with it. And so a couple of weeks later, we did a, a memorial service for it. And when everyone came together and just, just reliving life and telling stories, some of which revolved around her, some of which didn't, but it just... And there is something so, so wonderful about that. Well, and it's funny because all of our fishing holes that we go to there are kind of named after the people that caught fish at them. We got Glenn's Hole. We have Henry's Hole. We have Arley's Cove. We have everybody who's passed um, kind of is immortalized because if, if I tell Dad, hey, let's go fish Glenn's Hole, there's no more discussion needed. He knows exactly where to put that boat. Yeah. And all, and it, it's kind of funny because they kind of get immortalized in these fishing holes. Right. I, I like, I'd like to think thirty years from now, we'll be saying, "Well, let's go to Arley's Cove." Hey, why do you call that Arley Cove? Well, you had an uncle Arley that died in nineteen ninety six, and he <laughs> and he owned a he house up the a top whatever, of this. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He fell out of the boat here, and so we named it after him. <laughs> well, no, it's and it's it's funny, not not quite to that extent, but my you know, growing up, both of my parents' moms were alive, and so we had 
Big Grandma and Little Grandma is how we, we call we them. We did that, too. We did Big Mama and Little Mama. Yeah, and which obviously... It had nothing to do with their size, well, just so their age. For, for us, it did, <laughs> but not because my Big Grandma was a big... She was a very normally sized lady, but, my, but Little Grandma was so petite that it just created such a contrast. But so even my daughter, who never met my dad's mom still knows my mom's mom as big grandma. And so there is something kind of fun about even uh, about that, that tribute that still kind of tangentially exists. Well, I, I laughed. Um, generally somebody does something on the trip that's hilarious. And it's just one of those things that you remember that becomes part of, you know, this year we were finding bluegill beds and throwing markers out on them. And then we would come back and fish those. And my cousin Thomas, bless his heart, we, we kept explaining to him, Thomas, the marker is not sitting on top of a fish. It's a six-foot radius around that marker you'll catch fish. But he kept dragging the dang buoy in. <laughs> he, he, something about the way his brain worked. When he threw, when you said fish the buoy, he landed the hook in the cricket standing there on top of the buoy looking around like, I bet there's fish down there. I don't want to get off this buoy. <laughs> but we finally said, Thomas, just... just fish over there <laughs> for crying out loud we can't keep a spot mark because you because when they pull it up then we got to get on the sonar again and find the bed again and get the buoy back in the right spot <laughs> so <laughs> for crying out loud will you quit doing that <laughs> but we've we've had so much fun doing that stuff it, it all revolves around you know just just enjoying each other yeah and all. It's, it's a special week for me every week to get to take off and do that yeah absolutely but i, I would be interested i would be interested to know what other people what other people have vacations like that because the family vacation can be a giant pain in the butt it can be I, I think a lot of that depends on your family you know my sister and brother and I and, and get together with my dad and stepmom and stepsister and we all do kind of a family vacation and we're we're a party of 11 at this point I mean we're a huge family because we're all married and some kids and that sort of thing and so we're not going to get to do that this year, um, which is a real shame because that is one of the highlights because we all pitch in and cook and we all oh, do yeah. that. And so it's it's fun time together. But, you know, by contrast, there are other families that you get and you just kind of end up stuck in a room with a bunch of people. And it's not that. Right. You end up at Cracker Barrel waiting on a table for 12. Right. I have nightmares that begin with me standing in a Cracker Barrel waiting on a table for 12. At, at, at 11 o'clock on a Sunday. Yeah, yeah. I, I have nightmares that are, that revolve around the, that time. But this, you know, we all have our, our specialty. You know, he cooks the taters. He could, he, she can make the gravy. He can make the biscuits. You know, we all have our specialty, our specialty dish that we can whip up. Yeah. For that, you know, my, my job is knife sharpening. Mm-hmm. I have a talent for keeping an edge on my knife. I learned it from my grandpa. He had a talent for keeping an edge on a knife. And he passed that on to me. That was a very big portion of his life. Well, October of every year, and I know I've talked about it on the show before, is but the the men in my family and and some friends all go on a camping trip up to East Tennessee, and this is much more camping than what you and I did this past week. We stay in tents, and we you know every there's no running water or anything like that. Right. Um, and it's the same thing. You know, cheese grits for breakfast is my thing, and I also do the gravy. You know, like that's, I have, you know, put a, a cast iron skillet over the fire and you deep fry, end mm-hmm. up deep frying the bacon in its own fat. 
and then you pull it out and you make the gravy. Right? Like that's that's my job, and then right. everybody else has their own sort of specific job. And it's once you've been doing, I mean, we've been doing that trip for almost twenty years now, and so yeah, I've only been going for about fifteen. But but you just develop this this sink, and everybody works and does, and it's and it's just it's great to be able to unplug and not have to. You do this. You do that. Stop doing that. Right. Yeah, everybody just kind of has their specialty. And all. my Aunt Dean, before she passed away, always made what she called the river cake. And it was a carrot cake, and it had coconut and dates and pecans and walnuts and everything a else. summer was, fruit cake. Whatever was in the bat pantry went into the fruit. Into yeah. the, the, this 8 by you know 14 dish weighed 18 pounds <laughs> and all covered up in cream cheese frosting yeah. and that was the river cake that was all that that was ever known as is we're going to the river we need a river cake right somebody make a river cake and all and my mother made it this year and did a great job and we all got to sit down and share the river cake <laughs> which again kind of goes back to what you're saying now that's a even even though the person who is responsible for that's no longer with you you still have that tradition and there's here's where it came from and here's you know Oh yeah, yeah, and you and you, so you always try to bring the river cake incognito because well, me and Dad did it perfect this year. We slipped the river cake in; nobody knew it was there. And the river cake's always better the second day, so we said, "Don't worry, we'll serve it tomorrow." And me and him both got into it that night and the next <laughs> morning, and then set the river cake out there. Hey, why are pieces out of the river cake? Don't worry about it. You want some or not? But. <laughs> So we got someone ahead of you. It's yeah, fine. Yeah, no, yeah, don't worry. You, you just didn't happen to be the first in line this That's time. That's right. <laughs> no, but anyway, okay, let's talk about something cigar-related now that we've we've walked through memory lane. All right, so how about Alec Bradley? How about oh, Alec? Well, you know, so they released four new cigars. Um, this is their first foray into doing regional editions. So Crowned Heads famously did the Tennessee Waltz, the Texas Rose, and the uh, oh, the Buckeye Land. Uh, you know, you've got the East and the West from Avo. Avo. Uh, and now you've got Alec Bradley. There's a couple of others who have done it, too. But now you've got Alec Bradley's foray into this sort of market. They've got four different blends they're doing for each of the different... I lost it. For each of the different reps in these particular no. regions, were allowed to blend their own cigar to really bring it together and make it truly local. That's what's really cool is it's truly local. Yeah. And I'll, um, they, they are, um, you know, the Paper Tiger is going to be in New York City, New Jersey, Pennsylvania territory from a man named Jonathan Walsh. Ain't he the Unsolved Mystery Guys? <laughs> Jonathan Walsh. Anyway, which actually should have been the Highway Child. But anyway. The Midwest will get the Highway Child for Steve Tucker. It's Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, Northern Illinois, Northern Indiana. That one looks really good to me. Yeah, it Brazilian does. Brazilian wrapper, Nicaraguan binder and filler. That really sounds like a good smoke to me. And then, um, and then the last one is is for our region here. Um, so it's named after uh, Chris Carey, who's the sales rep in the region. I take great issue with this. So I took great issue with this before I realized where that they each got to name it and then it was kind of named after the person because it's called the fashionably light and as a native southeastern resident who's called this area of the country my home and i realize there's a certain amount of redneck time that happens here you know it's similar to island time where everyone kind of goes their own pace i've never been late to anything in my life and i take great exception with, with my great 
region of the country being associated with lateness. Well, but knowing this named after Chris Carey, that makes a little more sense. <laughs> yeah, if you know Chris, there's there's a certain amount of um, no nothing before its time in the South. Yeah. You know, when I would be spending the summers at my grandpa's house and all, he got up at 6 a.m., held out his hand, my mom put a cup of coffee in it, drunk his coffee, went to set, went to check the cows, come back, breakfast was on the table, went out to work at noon, lunch was on the table, at 5, dinner was served, and, and these were non-negotiable timetables. Right. No, my grandmother prepared three meals a day, full meals, for her whole life, never complained, raised six boys and my mother, never complained and prepared three full meals every day on this exact timetable, and, and nothing was ever done before. At 4.59, the biscuits weren't on the table. Right. At 5.01, the biscuits had been on the table for one minute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. And with so, a family that large, it meant that the biscuits were probably gone by yeah, 5.01. At 5.05, there were no more biscuits right. to be had. <laughs> you know, everybody... If Big you, families, you eat faster, you don't eat. That's right. But um, so the fashionably late, I would rather them called it, you know, I'll get to it here directly. Yeah. Directly is a unit of time between one minute and 12 days. Exactly. But, um, I, I'd rather it had a little more Southern flair to it, but I can understand the overall premise because we don't rush here in the South. It's, it's true. Uh, but I do think this looks incredibly tasty with a Brazilian wrapper, Mexican binder, and Nicaraguan fillers. Yeah, and I'm glad to see Alec Bradley doing something. Yeah, they have They've kind of been laid back. They have. Um, and I really like, at the top of the article, you can actually see the um, the artwork that goes into, because these are going to, it looks like they're doing bundles of five. Um, they're all six by 52 Toros. Um, yeah, 250 packs of five cigars each, so 5,000 cigars per blend. So it's a very small run. Just turned into Sean Connery there for a second, um, but the artwork is really f- like they put some effort into that as well, which I like. Yeah, I, I'm I'm excited about this. I'm willing to try them now. Alec Bradley, not my favorite cigar maker, and I'll, I've not had you know I like the Max. Um, I can smoke the Esteli. Yeah, and all, but um, not not my favorite cigar maker. But this, I'll definitely give it a shot. Absolutely, I I, I definitely plan on trying to at least get one of each. They're, it's pretty interesting the the way that they've put that all together, and it, and I like that they let the individual rep have ownership of it. Absolutely. So, so if this fails, it's on you. <laughs> That's right. If this blend fails, it's your fault. Uh-huh. And all, but talking about the deep south, I do want to, t- to cover this story. It has nothing to do with cigars, but I love it. Well, you know, talking about being kind of everything on its own time, everything being somewhat fashionably late. Apparently, uh, there is. Uh, in Farina, Illinois, which is a little north of here. Apparently, every year they do a tractor day where the kids, up, as young as, I think, 14, it's a high school thing, everybody's welcome. It's done in conjunction with the FFA, which is the Future Farmers of America, which is a huge deal in that section of the Midwest. And these kids get together, and they, they get up before school, and they get on their tractors and they drive their tractors, some of which 20 miles to school. Yeah. And, and as somebody that spent a lot of time driving a tractor in my youth, I, I can imagine how frustrating that would be. Especially because <laughs> uh, even if you've got a, a state-of-the-art, really well-working tractor, 
if you're doing 20 miles, the least amount of time it could possibly take you is an hour to get to school. Yeah. Yeah, but the, it's it's a cool thing. I really love stuff like that, though. I love that they're, they're still t- honoring their kind of, their agri- their agrarian of, roots. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and this, it does mention, um, what was it, that about 80%, I think it was, you know, of this school participates in FFA because it's, it's very, very integral to their way of life. And, you know, they do superlatives, too. So the best dress tractor, the oldest tractor, the, you know, all of these things. And I just think that's really fun that it gives these kids a sense of pride in what they do. And, and especially we've heard a lot in the news recently about how what we're dealing with is affecting farmers from, you know, ground beef going up to $5 a pound because of, you know, infrastructure. And so the plight of the farmer is still a very real going concern in this country and we have a tendency to kind of forget about them from time to time yeah it's it's i'm not going to get up on a moral high horse on it and all that but speaking of the moral high horse and antiquated things centuries old law this is from strange news npr dot all right folks i'm gonna break it down for you here you can tell when trey does the show prep because we get articles from npr and all from National Public Radio. Century-old law against cursing in public repealed by Virginian legislators. I'm going to stop and make two points. First of all, NPR is one of the few news outlets that actually has a section of their website dedicated to weird news, which is where these came from. Secondly, the first thing I thought when I read this article was, hey guys, everybody, coronavirus is done. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. Because the Virginian parliament has decided that this is more important. <laughs> that not writing tickets for swearing in public. And I'll be, you know, I'm, I will do my fair share of swearing when I'm amongst the guys. But if a lady is present, I just don't. It's just, it's, I know it's antiquated of me, but that's just the way I am. I don't swear very much when I'm around my wife. I don't swear very much. You know, at all, but when, I, especially when a lady's present, and I would never swear around my mama. Yeah. So you know, and it's funny because I, I have a bit of a potty mouth from time to time, and we do a pretty good job of keeping it on the ropes when we're on the show, and and I have a, I'm usually pretty good about knowing my audience, um, but I think you do a little bit better job of that than I do. I mean, my former employer sitting at a table right across the street, he can personally attest to how, how many times I've let some words fly in business meetings and things like that. So I'm not <laughs> always as uh, scrupulous with my language as maybe I should be. Well, it's, so in Virginia, Virginia, letting the F-bomb fly in public could have got you a misdemeanor and a $250 fine. What's amazing about that to me, you know, this talks about it being a centuries-old you know, law that, and so the idea is that, well, it's just antiquated. It was still on the books, but not enforced, kind of like the rule of thumb. But that $250 fine would not have been the amount that when this was enacted in 1792, because that would have been like a $3,000 fine. Right. So that means somebody's been updating this. <laughs> yeah. That, that at some point, all right, folks, we got the budget balanced. But we should should we get a little more revenue off the cussing, off the swearing tax? F that, ha ha, two fifty. <laughs> but now I will tell you, here in the South, 
if you show up at court and you're wearing shorts in many Tennessee counties, you will not be standing in front of that judge. That is true. That is absolutely forbidden. And, and uh, <coughs> some are a more some are a bit more lax than others, but a collared shirt is still required as part of the dress code as well. Which I, I like the gravity of it. I do too. You uh, are you are in a place of importance, dealing with a matter of importance, right? Show that somehow, right? Show just, if for, don't do it for me, do it for you. Yeah, exactly. Show that you're giving this some some attention that it deserves, right? You know, because the last thing you want is the judge to feel like he needs to get your attention. Yeah, I I had the uh, displeasure at the beginning of the year uh, for being in court as a part of a lawsuit I was involved in. Um, and it was amazing to me. I wore a suit with a tie. I spoke very eloquently, and I addressed the judge with all of the matter of importance afforded a man in his position. Meanwhile, the other party was there in jeans and a T-shirt and had to constantly be reminded of the proper decorum, right? How, who to address and how to address them, and it's not surprising that, that our side won. Yeah, I mean, things like that matter. You know, it's it's the cigar lounge. You know, sometimes guys come in here in suits. Sometimes they come in here in T-shirts and flip-flops. You know, this is Sunday or Saturday. And uh, everybody's kind of in their laid-back gear. But my favorite time is Friday night when everybody's getting off from work. Yeah. Because you can really see who's got the good jobs at all. You can see they come in, and they come in dressed well. Well, and we've mentioned before, you know, we have several attorneys that come into this shop. And you can always tell the days that they're just doing office hours versus the days they have to go to court because of the way they're dressed. You know, and there there is something kind of fun about that. Like we've said before, it's a very egalitarian society in here. Everyone is equals, but it is fun to kind of see the day-to-day differences. Yeah, and, you know, the cigar is the great equalizer. Everybody can sit down and smoke a cigar. Everybody can have a cigar and enjoy the way they want to. Right. But if you get, but if somebody walks in here, you know, in stretch pants and, uh, and tank top and doesn't re- flip-flops doesn't really they're not really invited into the group there's a, yeah there is a certain amount of you know there was a time in my life fairly recently where the majority of people that i knew had never known me in a shirt that didn't have a collar right and that was just kind of the way that was how i pre- preferred to live my life I've, I've gotten a little more casual lately um but there's there's something about feeling like you're dressing for the occasion, even when there is no occasion other than just wanting to put a best foot forward. Right. You know, when I have a business meeting, I'm always dressed like a golf casual. Now I wear blue jeans, but I always wear nice blue jeans. Right. If a blue jeans gets a pair of, uh, a hole in it, a pair of blue jeans gets a hole in it in my life. They are it, yard work only. Yeah, it's yard work only. You'll see me mowing the yard in them. Mm-hmm. That's the only way those blue jeans ever see the light of day again, because I'm not going to wear myself in that manner. Yeah, exactly. And also, there's there's a lot to that. There's a lot to dressing, and like I said, so much of life. There's two things in life that I think are valuable. One of them I learned this week right before I went on my trip, and I thought it was really smart. A man that had went to Harvard was on a podcast, and he said, my Harvard professor, my student advisor, sat down with me. He said, there's two things I want you to do. I want you to work hard not to offend anybody. And I want you to work twice as hard not to be offended. 
if the rest of the world would live by those two rules, how great would it be? It would. If it we w- could just let it slide off like water off a duck's back. Because then you wouldn't have to worry about the former. Well, if you worried about the former, you wouldn't have to worry about the latter. And vice versa. And if the guy across from you was worried about not being offended, then if you slipped something out, it wouldn't be a big offense. Right. But people around here, they know if, if I say a cuss word... It means Shane has had enough. It was the right. day that I nearly threw the jukebox out into the middle of the street right. here at Carruthers because I couldn't get them to turn the thing down so that we could actually have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And finally they said, well, we ain't doing it. And I said, well, if nobody's doing it, I'll take care of that. And I went over there and jerked the cord out of the wall and slung the thing down. And all because that's the way life should work. Right. <laughs> and I don't think there should be both radios in boats. If you got a radio in your boat, sell it and stay home. No if, radios in boats. Was it was it two weeks ago when if you need a if you need a speaker on the beach that you don't understand the purpose of the beach? Right, then you don't need a beach. Yeah, and I, and I understand music's a bigger part of some people's life than mine, but it's never it's never bigger than the person I'm sitting across the table from. Right. Well, uh, let's wrap it up. Tell uh, me about the Ecuador. You know, it's a five and three quarters. You know, it, it's. I know that part of the reason that I got away from them for so long was because I was kind of a little burnout on it, um, and part of it was the price. And, 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 you know, having taken some time off, it's, it's as good as I remember it when it first came out. Would you change the grade on it if, it, if, the, if Camacho dropped all those to $8 cigars? Would you change the grade? I don't know that I would change the grade, but I would change my frequency which, with which I smoke it. Which may change the grade, if that makes sense. So the Reserve Real Nicaraguan, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a six and a half all day long. Like I said, scares a seven to death. Um, I don't want to pass sevens out like they're candy. Right. It is a little harder to acquire. You know, the only place to buy them around here is Casa. But if I have anything to say about it with Austin, they'll be in this shop at some point. Good luck on that. <laughs> yeah. But they, he did ask me the other day which which of that Altadis line I would like to see in the humidor, which I think is a, a great question for, to ask your customers. Absolutely. And I'll, But how do they get a hold of us? All right. Well, you can email us at info at cigarcast.com. We're on facebook.com slash cigarcast and Instagram and Twitter at the cigarcast. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening this week. Until next week, have a great cigar and think well of us. Mm-hmm.